Hello and welcome to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name's Jason Barnard. It's the 20th of May 2023 and I've just heard the terrible news that Pete Brown has died. Pete and I had a lot of contact in the last few years uh, linked with the podcast that we did together, the extensive one. He was so gracious with his time and responsible for crafting the lyrics for some of the greatest music ever made. I wanted to reshare the podcast that I did with him as one tiny way of keeping his music alive, which will never die. So let's hear my podcast with Pete. Welcome to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name's Jason Barnard, and that was Cream, I Feel Free, because I've got lyricist for Cream, a much more poet, singer, record producer, screenwriter, the legendary Pete Brown here today. Uh, welcome to the Strange Brew, Pete. 
Thank you. Such a pleasure to do a career-spanning podcast with you. But it's also great to start with I Feel Free because that's a song that over time has become a real anthem and embodied the spirit of the 60s. Is that something that resonates with you and is that something that you were trying to capture at the time with the lyrics? Well, I mean, I suppose it's mildly psychedelic uh, or or maybe mildly pre-psychedelic. Um, but um, it was the first hit, proper hit that we had, you know, a genuine um, organic hit rather than the, than wrapping paper, which was bought into the charts, I ignominiously say, uh, wasn't my fault. But um, it's also the only kind of song which I would think I would categorize as, as, a, as a, almost like a pop song, because we didn't do anything remotely like that after it. Even though we had other hits, but but even, I mean, White Room certainly wasn't the pop song, you know, and Sunshine was a very bluesy type of thing. But um, I mean, the the good thing about I Feel Free really is is that you've got a very interesting combination of elements, which is a very very hard driving rhythm section, and then on top of that, you've got this very very legato uh, uh, vocal, you know. Mm. And that's a really great contrast. I mean, the only person previously to that that had done something like that was was probably Brian Wilson. He did he did a couple of things like that, you know, mm-hmm. uh, with very hard driving rhythm. But um, it was very special, really. It's a, it's a very special song. Very happy about it. And of course, it's now in a a bank commercial <laughs> at the moment. You know about that? Oh, no. Uh, was it a UK one? Yeah, the Starling Bank. Wow. Rather a kind of tame name for a, a rapacious bank. But um, they've bought it for a year, which is good news for the finances. <laughs> How did the songwriting um, work with uh, Jack Bruce? Was it that he worked the, the melody around your lyrics, or did you have a role, or was it? did it vary? Yes, it varied quite a lot, although because of the nature of the of the cream situation, which was the fact that they were on the road nearly all the time because they were a cash cow for the management, then we didn't get very much time to work on stuff. Um, and so um, some of it might have turned out quite different if we'd have had more time. But anyway, no, we we did it. I Feel Free was certainly the music for that was written first. And then, then I just kind of found the right words uh, for that particular one. But we did it always round later on, you know. Before the cream years, you you were quite a, a notable poet. And uh, was it was it Ginger and Jack actually saw you at one of those gigs where you were doing poetry? Well, um, not exactly. I mean, right. I was a huge jazz fan, and I was always down the jazz clubs listening to what was going on and. Um, was particularly I, I liked some of the old older guys that were that were from the first generation of modern jazz bebop and stuff like that but also mixed in there were this next generation which was jack and ginger and people like that and uh, they were very very exciting musicians to listen to anyway and i would i was very friendly when we started doing the poetry thing then mm. dick hextall smith the great saxophone player used to come and play with us on the jazz and poetry things. And that was the connection, really. That's how I met Jack and Ginger, through Dick. 
we got on very well, me and me and Dick. You know, we were very good friends. Mm. We even lived in the same place together for a while. And uh, I, I do miss him very badly, actually. He was one of my best friends. Um, and, of course, later on, I worked with him with Coliseum. In fact, I'm still working with Coliseum. Mm. But that's another story. But, but um, anyway, Jack and... Ginger. Ginger had heard me doing stuff. In fact, he actually played on one of the jazz and poetry concerts. And Jack, there was a guy called John Mumford, a very, very fine musician, trombonist, who was a friend of mine. And he was sharing a flat with Jack. And that's how I really met Jack. Uh, went around and was sociable. And, and, um, and then when cream formed after after being in the graham bond organization of course which was from to my mind the greatest british band that was dick mm. jack ginger and graham with occasional bursts of john mclaughlin then uh after being in that that's when cream began to sort of shape up and they knew that i could write so they ginger phoned me up and said you know they were round the corner in the studio uh, from where I lived, and they said, uh, Ian, do you want to come around and write some words for, you know, for this? And so I popped around to the studio, and lo and behold, there was wrapping paper. So uh, that, that was how it started. And then it became obvious that Jack and I had a tremendous chemistry, that we had the same sense of humor, we had the same socialist outlooks, and we liked a lot of the same music, you know, a lot of the, you know, we liked Charlie Mingus and we liked Duke Ellington and we liked Coltrane and everybody, you know, like, and we would listen to stuff together quite a lot, you know. Um, so, uh, um, and it, there was the, that just kind of chemistry, which I've always had with people from Scotland, you know, I'm, I'm in particular, or Celtic people generally. I'm actually married to one. I'm married to a Scot, you know. She's uh, she's very Scottish in some ways. So there was this chemistry, and that's that's what sustained us, really. That was what was really happening. Um, and also, we could work very fast. I could work fast, because we had to. And Jack could work very fast anyway, because he's very, very versatile, you know. So we managed to get quite a lot done in very short spaces of time. Wrapping paper Things I know 
it's all broken Weeds are growing Wish I was going home to the house by the shore Where you love me And make me so sandy And the great thing about Cream at the time is that musically they were constantly evolving and the way that you were able to add lyrics worked remarkably well with the changing sound of the band. So by the time you get to Disraeli Gears and Sunshine of Your Love, the sound had progressed even even more. And sure, um, well that's because they had a great producer by that time. That was another thing, of course. But on the other hand, um, yeah, I mean, we we were well into it by then as a a partnership really so um we could do things relatively at the drop of a hat and that song in particular it's just a such a great combination of the riff as well as that opening line it's getting near dawn well, uh, it's so evocative well that was the truth you see i mean we were working all night and then jack picked up his double bass which he was still playing at that time a bit and he said well what about this then and played the riff and it was like five o'clock in the morning. It was in the summer. And I looked out and it was getting near dawn. So I wrote it down. <laughs> so, yes. Funnily enough, years and years later, when I started singing the song myself, mm. then I realized what it was about. I, I, I wasn't quite sure what it was about. But then actually what it's really about is like a kind of musician or somebody doing a gig or doing work of some kind. And then... um being on the way back home to, uh, you know, and, and hoping that his wife or girlfriend would be waiting for him and so something nice would happen after a lot of hard work. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what it was really about. Shining through on you Yes, I'm with you, my love 
Some of the songs that we've been talking about recently seem to come very quickly and on the spur of the moment. But is it true that, that White Room was actually much longer yes. poem that, that you'd been working yes. on? It was an eight-page poem. And luckily, one of my bits of education was that I went to a journalism college for a while, which I didn't graduate from. But um, at the journalism college, I learned the art of praise. Um, which was how to, you know, cut things down and make them um, find the essential stuff in there and, and get rid of the, the unnecessary ornaments. And um, because there was very little time, as I said, for, for working with cream, mm. then all the ideas were considered. And Jack had already written most of the music for White Room. And we tried a few ideas, a few lyrical ideas that didn't work. And then I suddenly thought of this poem, which was called White Room anyway. And I thought, well, if I 
tracey this down to a page, then maybe that could work, and and that's what did work. One of the great things about the lyrics of that track is just the references in it, and you can listen back and get various meanings from it. Yeah. Black Roof Country's in there, and when you're reading it, you can read so much meaning into different parts of it. I think the thing that's made it last is the fact that there is a certain mystery about it. Mm. It's very cinematic in a way. It jumps around from, from position to position. You know, I've got different kind of persons telling it and different, and, and a lot of kind of images in the middle of, of, of emotions and stuff like that. And, um, and I think that's what makes it interesting. It's not straightforward at all. It's in its way, it's quite, I guess you would call it sophisticated, but, um, but people seem to understand it on a basic level, which is great, of course, for me. And, and, um, and I'm very proud of it. I'm, I love the thing, you know. I still sing that now as well, you know, sometimes. Yeah. It was a time when I was going through a watershed period of changing slowly into what I became. And so it's all about that, really, in, in some ways. But it's about everything. I mean, you know, and, and being in London at that time and, and the need to travel and, and, and the need to, you know. I mean, it was written in the actual, well, the original poem anyway was written in the White Room itself. There was a, a room that I had in someone's flat. That, that was one of the first places that I rented ever. And um, so I actually wrote it in there. That's why, why it's in there, you know, because it's real.
beauty She was kindness in the hard crowd Around the time that Cream were dissolving and Jack was, I assume, kind of starting to, to formulate plans for his first solo album, which um, became Songs for a Tailor. Right. Was it just a, a natural process to continue working together? Yes, I think it was. You know, I think it, it was, there was a, as I say, there was that chemistry and we'd already got quite a lot of success. We were already kind of known as a, a songwriting duo and, and, um, and so I guess the obvious thing was to carry on, which we did for 48 years. <laughs> <laughs> Must be one of the longest ever songwriting teams, I think. Yeah. And theme for an imaginary Western. Right. I've heard that that was linked to Graham Bond. Is that true? Well, yes. I mean, because the thing about the Graham Bond organization was that they were like a kind of mixture of cowboys and pioneers or outlaws and pioneers. And so when I first heard the music for that, for that, for that song, then, uh, which came first, uh, then I actually thought, well, it's set, you know, I'm a big fan of Westerns. I I've got a big collection of Western DVDs. And, um, and I thought, well, it sounds like, it was reminiscent of some of the great Western scores mm. uh, in many ways. You know, it was it, it reminded me of Dmitry Tionkin and Jerome Moros and people like loads, the number of people that were specialized in, in Western film scores 
particularly Tiomkin, who I loved anyway. I loved his work. And and um, so it seemed obvious that it was going to be about some kind of Western type situation, you know. And then and then it came to me that it was uh, it was about Graham and Dick and Jack and Ginger, you know, mm-hmm. who were. Uh, as I say, they were pioneers in what they were doing, and also in many ways they were outlaws, partly because, um, yeah. although I think that that was the greatest ever British band, and then uh, it was to musicians what the Beatles were to the public in many ways, but although I think it was the best British band, then they were not beautiful, none of them were beautiful, you know. I mean, they were sexy, but they weren't beautiful, you know, and they weren't like pop things, you know, or anything like that. So they were more like, more like outlaws, you know, in in many ways.
you talked at the start about how you were performing originally as a poet, but that right. that developed. So when we did you start thinking about branching out yourself as a performer? Well, I mean, as I say, I was I was making a very thin living doing poetry readings of my own work. Yeah. It got better after we did the Albert Hall thing in 1965 with Ginsberg and Ferlinghetti and all these guys, and got we got better known through that, and then. The next year was the year that I started writing for Cream, and and through that, through actually being having a toe in the music business, as it were, I always wanted to be a musician anyway. I mean, right. although I never thought I would be a singer, I was having trumpet lessons and and playing percussion and stuff like that. And and when we got the battered ornaments together in 1968, then then. Um, I thought I'd be allowed to play trumpet, and, and but actually I was a rotten trumpet player anyhow. So I mean, uh, and they said the guys in the band said to me, "Well, you know, none of us can sing, so you wrote the bloody songs, you fucking sing them," you know. <laughs> and so that's what I did, yeah, very badly to start with for a long time. You know, I was the world's one of the, not a good singer for a long time, you know. But uh, then other then things happened, and, and, and I did six years of, of singing lessons later on, you know. Mm. We have Dark Lady from... Oh, yeah. <laughs> from a meal that you can shake hands with in the dark yes. that album. Um, what are your memories of uh, writing and recording that song in particular? Well, it was very influenced by Graham, you know. Right. You can hear it. It's it, it's not as good as what Graham was doing at the time, but it was it certainly was influenced by Graham. It was about this this particular woman who who actually was a sort of Carmen figure amongst the musicians. Every she was very 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 sexy, and and everyone fell in love with her, and people used to fight over her. I I nearly got into it. I I'm a pacifist, you know, mm. and I I nearly got into a fight over her. <laughs> it was terrible, really. And, uh, yeah, so so it was really about her, you know. She was she was very she get you into terrible trouble. <laughs> <laughs> but your time with the battered ornaments didn't last. No, only a year. I mean, just over a year. They they notoriously fired me just before we were going to play with the Stones in the park. So and and they did it without me, which was a, actually a mistake. But no, they decided that I wasn't a good enough singer, which was true. I mean, at the time, I, I quite honestly, I would have fired myself if I'd have had the courage. But anyhow, yeah, that was that was it was all right because the next thing I did was I formed Pi Blocto and 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 that was mm, more of a musical sort of thing that 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 lasted for quite a long time and 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 I was able to actually get my chops going and and I was in very 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 good company with that band you know so they kind of nurtured me a bit and I I did improve a bit you know to some extent anyway. So that was that was good. Oh, no! 
was a you know I mean it was a hell of a band Jim Mullen and all those guys in it they were fantastic you know I listen to that every now and then now and, and I think Christ what a band you know yeah when you hear thousands on a raft I think it's got a bit more of a classic feel and, and doesn't oh yes I, I love that so I still sing it you know I still do because it's another one of those songs where where I I wrote it, you know, and I thought, okay, well, I like the sound of this. This is all right, you know. And I didn't, I really didn't know what it was about. Again, I wasn't sure. And then over the years, I began to realize that I predicted a whole lot of things that were going to happen in my life later on, you know. So (laughs) that was what it was partly about, you know. Yeah, it was really, I I love that song, you know. And I, I played it 
before the COVID thing, I played it. I went, I, the last gig abroad that I did was in Vienna and uh, it, was a, it was a full house. It was really well attended. And, and, uh, and I sang that and, and this guy came up to me at the end and said, um, oh, you know, I, I cried. He said he cried, you know, because he thought it was sounded so, you know. Oh, obviously, I'm singing a hell of a lot better now than I used mm. to, so it's got more emotional impact and everything. But, um, but yeah, it's a song. It's a very important song to me, Perry.
You formed a partnership with Graham Bond. Yeah, right. That was um, uh, the, the second and third versions of Pipe Lockto were with Phil Ryan on keyboards, who became one of my closest friends, and and um, and we carried on working until he died, of course, uh, a few years back. But um, uh, yeah, then I, I jumped at the opportunity to get a band together with Graham in '72. And well, actually, towards the end of '71, really. And uh, um, we tried hard. We made a record. We did lots of gigs. Graham was damaged by his 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 time with with heroin, mm. and so it, it was very unpredictable, uh, to say the least. But we did some great gigs. Toured a lot in in Europe. And did some festivals, all sorts of things, and they, yeah, it was something. I, I, that was the best trumpet playing I did as well. I was playing a bit of trumpet with that, and that was probably the best. Graham was a man who inspired you, and and unlike a lot of great musicians, he also encouraged you. You know, if you got up on the stage with Graham, you would always do something that you didn't think you could do. You know, because he was, he had that effect on you, and that was fantastic for me. It was, it was great. I mean, towards the end of it, the drug thing got too much again, and 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 uh, the performances started to suffer, and and in the end, I bailed. You know, but um, 
Graham, you know, it was somebody that I loved as a musician and to some extent as a friend, you know, although it was, as I say, you never knew quite where you were with him. But, um, uh, you know, he was an amazing guy in many, many ways. And when you listen to that album, Two Heads Are Better Than One and, and, and tracks like Lost Tribe, um, oh, yeah. were you more musically confident by then and were you playing a greater role in, in, in the musical side of things? Yes, a little bit. And, and oh, yes, absolutely. And, and um, you know, Graham, as I say, was really, really encouraging and inspiring. And so and so I took I did take a slightly bigger part in that. And, and in fact, Lost Tribe was... The thing in Britain was was starting, you know, the the, the scene was starting to change and 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 uh, and die, and so we found ourselves on the road in Europe a hell of a lot, as I said, where we were appreciated a lot more, and that's where the idea of the, the Lost Tribe thing came from, you know.
as we were discussing earlier on, the, the, the ever-present element of your career was that incredible partnership with Jack that you had. Yes. Despite the vagaries of the music industry and the, the shifts in sounds and whatever, that seemed to be an ever-present thing. So even by 1980, you were there with Jack and We Have Bird Alone, which is a great oh, yeah, favourite. No, yes, I, I mean, we went through lots and lots of different changes, really. I mean, Jack was a very, very open-minded man musically. He listened to a whole lot of different things and was inspired by things as diverse as the obvious things like Charlie Mingus and Joe and and then soul things like Joe Tex and and then he also was very capable of playing classical stuff as well and he loved Olivier Messiaen you know who was very important to him and so it was always changing which was great for me because we never got into a, a rut or anything you know um, there was always a, a new challenge and, of course, we did have much more time to work on stuff. Yeah, I mean, it, and it just lasted and lasted. I mean, yeah, we had some fights. Uh, we didn't speak to each other for a while every now and then, you know, because we're both highly developed personalities and and having the two of us in the same room sometimes didn't always work. And then Jack had problems as well later on, with, you know, with nasty uh, substances, and so, um, which I didn't. I I got completely straight in 1967. I I stopped drinking and taking silly drugs and stuff like that completely and utterly. I've never touched anything since, and so it was kind of kind of a bit difficult. But I got used to it, yeah. you know. And mainly, I could function under that particular strain, mostly. Every now and then I walked away from it, or he walked away from me, you know, because whatever. But mostly we stayed there, you know. And then we hadn't talked for a while when we did the last record together. But that's, an, that's towards the end of it anyway. But Bird Alone is, is, you know, we both loved Charlie Parker. So that was Bird, you know. Bird was Charlie Parker. But at the same time, it's the title of a very, very good book about Ireland by a, a very famous writer called Sean O'Fillon, which has an atmosphere to it as well, with very amazing atmosphere in that book. And so I sort of mentally combined Charlie Parker with this Irish writer in my mind, and, and that's how that one turned out. Outside of your songwriting partnership with Jack in 80s and 90s, what were you doing as well? Because I know that in that period you outside the music industry or, or performing, you did a, a, a range of things? Yes, well, I mean, when the punk thing came along, I was completely horrified by it and thought that it was something that was destroying the skill base of British music, music you know, and um, and uh, you couldn't get a record deal at the time because they just wanted people that couldn't play and that looked right. And so I had a great band at the time called Back to the Front, full of absolutely amazing musicians like Ian Lynn and Jeff Siapardi and, and, and John McKenzie sometimes on bass or Dill Cass. And um, we were doing well live, you know, because people hated punk live. A lot of people couldn't stand it. And we played in places where the punk acts had played a couple of days before and they told us how much they hated it, you know. Because it was, unfortunately, the punk thing was something 
that the record business invented and rammed down everybody's throat. And I won't say any more about it because I get I start ranting. <laughs> <laughs> but but um, and so I thought, okay, well, after the failure of Back to the Front, which was partly me because I once again thought that being such great musicians, I wasn't I wasn't doing my job enough, and so I felt well. Uh, I'm going to stop uh, and I'm going to try and learn to do this properly even if I never do another gig again. So that's when I started having singing lessons uh, in about towards the end of 1977. Um, and, and, uh, but meanwhile, I wasn't doing any gigs at all. I just, I just gave up and, um, and started trying to write film scripts at a time when there was... <laughs> when there was no British film industry at all. And uh, Margaret Thatcher actually thought that the British film industry was 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 full of um, communists, which was completely and utterly fucking untrue, and tried to destroy it as a result. And so at that time, we were making about 30 films a year, most of which were for television, yeah. you know. And, um, and so they called them plays, but actually they were proper films. You know, people like John McKenzie directing them and stuff like that. But some of them were really good. We got to, Phil and I did the music for one of them, uh, called Red Shift, which was an Alan Garner book. It was really good, you know. Mm. Anyway, uh, so I was writing, you know, and, and, and I actually got a very good agent literary agent and he got me quite a lot of work you know but a lot of the things that i wrote never got made i think they were too idiosyncratic really so uh but i still do that I, i'm still trying to get you know i've got a very good partnership with a young director and i'm still trying to trying to get get my scripts made mm. um and there is some possibility of that at the moment so that's good Love in the mirrors Down in the bars Songs promise everything From sad guitars The faces never change but you're not there I hear the notes you've played Still in the air
When we were talking about Bird Alone, you, know, we, you were kind of leading into the final album that, that Jack made, Silver Rails. And, yeah. But you'd said that around that period you hadn't actually spoke to Jack for a while? No, I won't say why, but I mm. <laughs> but I didn't. We, I was pissed off with him. Mm. And uh, then I got the call, you know, saying, I, I mean, I, I knew he wasn't well, you know. Um, and... Um, you know, he'd done himself quite a lot of damage over the years, and and um, and he said, "Yeah, I'd like to do a new record. I want you to work on it." And um, uh, and I realised what it meant, and so I I went absolutely no problem at all. I, I was there, and we wrote some stuff that I'm very proud of. And funnily enough, actually, when you're talking about sales, yeah, um, then obviously the first. Songs for a tailor sold very well and was in the charts. Yeah. 
And um, then, apart from some of the stuff that he did with um, other famous people like West Bruce and Lang and, and um, the stuff that he did with Robin Troer, which actually did get into the charts, um, then none of his solo albums got very far, although now it seems like a very important body of work and people really revere it, you know. But um, But then... Silver Rails actually sold really, really well. Yeah. So um, that was very good. It kind of vindicated the work a little bit, you know. The lyrics on that are just so, uh, um, again, you know, work well. And when you uh, hear Reach for the Night, for example, this yeah. it seems to have a particular extra edge given Jack was... He was dying. Yeah. Basically, was that just something that you'd had already, or, or actually no. Sort of wrote? No, no, I, I actually, I, he played me. I think I'm pretty sure he played me some of the music to that. His and his son uh, Malcolm, who I work with quite a lot these days, Malcolm actually helped do all the demos. And uh, and when they played me that over the phone, then I I was really absolutely blown away. Well, I was in tears actually. I mean, I, I thought that was amazing what he did with that, you know. Um, it is very powerful and, and, and heavy emotionally. But, you know, that's what music can be about and should be about, you know, sometimes. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh 
recent times I've spoken to Gary Brooker. Oh, yeah. We reflected on, on the, the uh, Northern album, which he'd been made with the current line right. of the program. Yes. How did you get to work with Gary and, and the group? Well, I've come across him quite a bit over the years because, you know, we belong to the same generation. And we, but um, and I always liked 
Procolharum. You know, I thought that they were a, a very musical group. I liked what, a lot of what they did, uh, uh, particularly that Hamburg album. I really like that one. But I like some of the a lot of the other stuff as well. I think it's good. Uh, and um, my very good friend Dennis Weinrich, who was a great engineer and producer, and uh, he called me to say, you know, like, would I be interested in doing the lyrics for this new record that they were going to do? And uh, also their manager who just died, actually, Chris Cook, who was a lovely guy. Mm. He also came on and said, you know, well, he'd like me to do it. He thought it was a good idea and blah, blah, blah. And so I had a go at it. And um, I thought a lot of it came out pretty good. I mean, it was odd because, you know, <laughs> I'm an old lefty, you know, <laughs> and they are not. Mm. And so there were some divergences of opinion about certain things. And and also, uh, on the other hand, I managed to sneak some things in there which <laughs> which um, were probably not what they thought they meant. But they <laughs> I know what they meant. So, yeah. I mean, it was a, yeah. an interesting idea because, I don't know if you realize, but because but, um, originally I had a meeting with Gary. Yeah. And, and I said, you know, have you got any themes in mind, you know, any ideas, you know, about it and things? You know, just so I can get in my mind in the ballpark sort of thing. And and he said, Ten Commandments. Ooh. And I went, uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> now, I went to a religious school. I hate religion deeply. Mm. I think it causes an awful lot of trouble in the world, I'm afraid. But anyway, I thought, oh, this is an opportunity. I can do some of my very cynical sort of things, mm. you know, <laughs> being a cynical old bastard. And so I proceeded to do it, and I made it in such a way that that it was it's ambiguous. Of course, it is. A lot of it's ambiguous. You know, it can mean whatever you want it to mean. Really, I know what it means. But uh, <laughs> and I, you know, musically, I thought it was really good. I thought it was a really good record. I, I you know, so I've got no problems with it musically. I might not choose to do it again, but um, certainly it was something that I probably needed to do once in my life. <laughs> but they're all great musicians. Yeah. No, terrific. Gary's got one of the great voices.
It makes me feel so free moving to a pair of tracks from what many people regard as your best album, uh, Perils of Wisdom, yeah. and you made that with uh, 
Phil Ryan, the first track that we've got here is uh, Motor Mother. Um, yeah. how, how did your um, partnership with uh, Phil uh, develop over the years? Because you, you have re- recorded quite a few albums. Yes, yes, we, yes, yes. We, we've done a lot. Um, well, uh, Phil and I, you know, were both pretty strong left-wingers. And, and you know, originally when he joined Piblocto, um then we used to fight quite a lot because by that time, Although my background is working class, the same as him, but by, by that time uh, I had become a wealthy songwriter, or relatively wealthy. Yeah. And I loved Phil from the moment I saw him. Phil used to be in a band called The Eyes of Blue, which was one of the great, great bands. You know, yeah. uh, they were all Welsh. They were from from the South Wales area, and uh, they made some records which are terrific should have been much much bigger but i was working in a place called middle earth before i started singing i had this band called the the first real poetry band with um with john mclaughlin on guitar and and we were doing our jazz and poetry thing and phil used to play down at the middle earth regularly and so i got i used to hang around there and chase women and um i got to hear him a lot and got to know him a bit wrote a couple of songs which then with them which never actually got recorded and then of course when they broke up then i i grabbed phil for for Piblocto, and we were together for a couple of years there and then i sort of he joined man of course and that was the most successful period of the man band and then I, I and I wrote a few things for them and went and played on a couple of their records played percussion and stuff and um you know i i realized that after the back to the front band broke up i realized what i really needed in my life was phil uh in order to write the things that i wanted to write the more personal type or idiosyncratic types of thing you know and so we got together again and we started making demos and and then we formed a live band which is called the interositors which lasted a few years and started making records, you know, and, and, and underfunded records. But nevertheless, I think there's a great deal to be gleaned from them, you know. I love those records. Uh, and the last one we did, which was Perils of Wisdom, which we had to do fairly quickly due to financial limitations. I, I, I love the thing, you know, I really do. And I think it's some of the best work I've done. And, you know, Phil, well... Phil looked after his wife for nine years. She was very, very, very ill, and so he couldn't always do the gigs. Eventually, he couldn't do the gigs at all, mm. and so I just went and had the band myself. But uh, then we did manage, after his wife died, we managed to do more gigs and, and record a bit more. So, And that was the last thing we did there. You know, um, We were planning another one, and then, of course, he went and died. Yeah. But um, no, I mean, Perils of Wisdom is says a lot of things that I always wanted to say, <laughs> and of course, I mean, Motor Mother was a, I was I was always kind of you know I mean it's quite a sort of humorous lyric in a way, but Mo- Motor Mother was was this kind of weird contradiction about the obsession with cars, you know, cars being very womb like but also very penis like as well, you know. I, I remember seeing a, 
a program quite recent, actually, in the last couple of years, about sports cars, and and they pointed out one of the kind of guys on the commentary pointed out that the E-type Jaguar was meant to be a sex symbol. It was meant to be like a like a the curves of a woman, but with the with the punch of a penis, you know. <laughs> and so I thought, well, that's a very interesting contradiction. I've always wondered what psychologically and what the subtext was about being... Uh, so I've never... Neither me nor Phil have ever been a driver, you know. We've never driven cars. And so <laughs> I wondered sexually where, where we were at with people's psychological relationship to cars, you know. And uh, and that's where that song came from. I actually think it's one of my better humorous songs. You know, there's a, I like humor. You know, I think it's important. <clears throat> the motor car, penis or vagina? That's the question we have to discuss today. <laughs> For a wild ride Motor mother Your overdrive Makes me feel so alive Motor mother I celebrate And I'll never come late Motor mother Your womb so tight Helps me get through the night When I'm locked in your arms Passing cities and
said it was underfunded and recording quickly it doesn't show on, on on songs throughout the album including eva's blues for example it's, yeah it's a really good sounding record yeah no it does it says we we did as the best we could you know oh, it was in a good studio we just could have done with a bit more time but um yeah eva's blues is i originally wrote it to give to somebody else and then they never did it never bothered with it so I looked at it again, and I th- and by that time the Amy Winehouse phenomenon was happening, which I, you know, I, I thought Amy, Amy Winehouse was a terrific singer and a, a damn good songwriter. I was very much on her side, actually. I liked what she did, but I could see the dangers in how she was, you know. And so I kind of invented this narrative, which, although it wasn't really about her, but in some ways it was. It's a song that's grown over the years, you know. Uh, um, I uh, I sing it now quite a lot when I do gigs, you know, and I think people seem to really like it and, and sort of understand what it's about, you know. That's pleasing. Just 
T-shirt and blue jeans She looked like an angelic kid But the wild words in her songs They told me about all the things she did She did Hey, Sing the blues for me one more time Hey, Sing the blues for me one more time I have to say my intentions They were not very clear-cut Faces in the business Thought I could help her make a buck Maybe she'd show her gratitude In a way I knew I'd like Didn't realize I'd started to love her And follow her into the night The suits locked the way she sang set her up real well I just hung around on the sidelines to catch her if she fell Hey Eva sing the blues for me one more time Hey Eva sing the blues for me one more time To say it was over, over Before it had really begun The big town went straight to her head And she tried to reach for the sun She reached for other things too And they started bringing her down Dealers in her dressing room Whenever she played in town She won all the prizes so fast Then one morning she was gone She's gone Her blues tell you beauty can't last Though the voice on the record sings on Time.
it's worth mentioning that you're still collaborating on new music, such as the last three Chrissy Matthews albums. Yeah. But of course, to close, it's notable that you've worked recently with Joe Bonamassa for his latest album, Royalty. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, we're playing uh, One Door Opens. How did that collaboration come about? Well, one of my managers, who shall be nameless, um, tried to get us together because he interviewed him for something or other. And that didn't really happen. But then I got involved with a project which is called Cream Acoustic, which is it's a record and it's also a film. It was made over a couple of years from about 2019 to uh, onwards. That's with um, Mark Waters. The, uh, he's the young director of Cream Acoustic Film, isn't he? Yeah, it's an all-star thing. You know, it's got Bobby Rush, it's got Joe Bonamassa, it's, and I was, uh, and I'm singing on it as well. But I'm also one of the executive producers, so that's coming out in June of next year. I was on the Joe Bonamassa session. You know, I was there in my capacity as one of the executive producers, and we got talking. And that's where it came from, really. We, we, he eventually called me and said, you know, like, okay, I've got, I've got this thing coming up, and I'd like to do some stuff, and did some stuff, and 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 that some of it worked, you know, some of it was good, you know. So, I, and now that's that album is nominated for a Grammy. Hmm. So that's that's good news. And you, you mentioned. Uh... The Cream Acoustic record. So that that's due to come out in the, the middle of next yeah, year? Yeah, June, yeah. Got everybody on it, you know. Maggie Bell, uh, Deborah Bonham, uh, female contributions. Um, Nathan James, I don't know if you know of him, from the, Ingl- the Inglorious Band. Incredible singer. The last sessions ever of Ginger Baker. He plays on four tracks. Wow. Bernie Marsden. It's, uh, the list is endless. Lots of great people. Have you got any other plans for next year? Are you, are you going to try and go out and possibly do some dates? Or? Yeah, I've just started doing some gigs. Um, and they've dried up at the moment uh, because of the uncertainty of what's going on. But uh, if things get better next year, certainly I'll go and do some gigs. And also I want to ma- try and make a new record. The producer of the Cream Acoustic record is a great guy called Rob Cass, Irish guy, who's a fantastic producer. He also produced the, the Silver Rails as well, which is how I met him. And he wants to do a, a record with me, so we're trying to raise money for that at the moment, uh, see what we can do with that. And, uh, yeah, I'd like to do that before I... I am too old, but I mean... <laughs> 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 uh, uh, you know, I'll be 80, 81 on Christmas Day. But um, I've got a lot of new songs that I've mostly been writing with people that I've worked with over the last few years, especially a guy called John Donaldson, who's a great keyboard player, lives down the road from me in Hastings. Um, Mona Zam, who was my guitar player in the Interrositors for eight years. And uh, I'm going to try and include... At least one song that I wrote with Phil Ryan that's never got recorded. Uh, and another one with John McKenzie. Uh, that, that John McKenzie was our bass player. He died a while back last year. This year, rather, sorry. So I'm going to do one that I wrote with him. going to do one that I wrote with a very, very good American musician called Carla Olson, 
Oh, yeah. You know of her? Yeah, absolutely. She's a producer and writer and guitarist and singer. We've been writing some stuff together, and there's one particular song that I would quite like to put on this record if I can get the chance. Um, plenty of stuff, no shortage. It's just an incredible body of work that we've covered today and it's been such a pleasure talking to you Pete and um, you're welcome I wish you all the best for 2022 it, it sounds like it, it will be a very busy year for you hopefully well as long as we can all stay alive then that's that's the main thing let's roll into Joe Bonamassa but okay. um, thank you again Pete cheers you're welcome bye Every time. 
Thank you for listening to the Strange Brew Podcast. If you do like the show, please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online. It's 10 years since I started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time. All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.